Milton. Hi. Uh, could you turn that down just a little bit? Well, I, I was told that I could listen to the radio at a reasonable volume from 9 to 11. Yeah, no, no, I, I know you're allowed to. I, uh, I was just thinking maybe like a, you know, personal favor. Well, I, 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 I told Bill that if, if Sandra's going to listen to her headphones while she's, while she's falling, then I should be able to listen to the radio while I'm collating. Uh -huh. So I don't see why okay. I should have to turn down the radio because yeah, all right, okay. I enjoy listening at a reasonable volume. Thanks. From Do you sometimes pine for a bit of peace and quiet in your office? As our workplaces change from casual Friday to casual all the time, cubicles to open space, formality gives way to the casual. So what constitutes good office etiquette these days? We're bringing you the expert advice in this episode of Business Briefing, starting with profanities in the workplace. And a warning for this segment, we've bleeped out the very bad swears, but there's still a bit in there. Shut up and sit down. There is no doubt that workplaces are more robust in 2015 as they relate to the use of swearing than they were in the 1940s. Further, I would not consider it uncommon for bad language to be used in the workplace in this or other similar industries. Those were the words of Deputy President Wells in the case of Mr John Smith versus Aussie Waste Management. In this case, which we refer to as Case 1, Mr Smith was fired during a phone call after reportedly saying You dribble shit. You always dribble f***ing shit. to the managing director. However, when taken to the Fair Work Commission, the dismissal was overturned. When is it okay to swear at work? Does it depend on context, tone, or just how offended your colleagues might be? I'm Nadia Isa, and answering those questions is University of New England's Simon Burgess. So I'm a lecturer in management with particular specialisations in business ethics, professional ethics and corporate social responsibility. Simon, why do you think Mr Smith's dismissal was ruled unfair by the Fair Work Commission? It was agreed that he had sworn at his general manager of, of the company, although there was only one incident of precisely that kind. The Smith did have a bit of a chequered history as far as workplace performance was concerned. I think he'd crashed the garbage truck four times and there may have been some other incidents of workplace misconduct, but they weren't very well documented. So there weren't clear cases in which he'd sworn aggressively at other people before. So there was no repeated pattern of that kind of behaviour shown. Shut up and sit down. Case number two was between German Horner and Carlos Bros. Mr Horner injured himself while at work and while reportedly in pain, he said... Why don't you get this f***ing shit brought forward? It's not right that we should f***ing well have to get stuff from under or straddle the f***ing racks all the f***ing time. To supervisor Mr Stanton, then telling Mr Stanton to... Piss off. Simon, this dismissal was ruled fair by the Commission. What's the difference here? In Mr Horner's case, his, his swearing was repeated. It, it was aggressive. It was abusive. It was swearing at a person rather than merely swearing as part of a coarse kind of discussion. And it was swearing in front of his colleagues, at his manager. And so that can threaten the authority of that manager. Procedurally fair as well. In case two, part of the ruling stated there's a difference between swearing as a part of conversation and swearing at someone. So is swearing always a sign of incivility in the workplace? Well, no, no. And I think cases such as this do recognise that, as you've said, uh, because there's a big difference between merely that coarse kind of conversation and aggression, uh, that kind of tone of voice that can be threatening or intimidating for another person. So you've got to ask what the intention is behind and what the tone of voice, what the kind of attitude of the person is in their swearing. In case one, it was stated that workplaces are more robust in relation to swearing. Do you think swearing is more culturally accepted now than, say, 50 years ago? 
it has been determined in cases such as this that uh, we are more accepting of swearing in the workplace, that standards have changed a little bit. There's a real dearth of research, a real lack of research as to whether or not uh, swearing is more common in workplaces now or than, than it was in the past. I mean, you can you can look at old films, you can read old novels uh, that are you know realistic in their content and in, in their dialogue, and you can look at things that way, or you can just ask some old people. I suspect that we are a bit more tolerant of swearing in the workplace now than we once were. What can employers or organisations do to reduce incivility in the workplace? My interpretation of the the evidence uh, leads me to think that there's much to be gained by encouraging and expecting individuals to hone their own civil communication skills, learning more about the best ways to de-escalate tension and to re-establish calm and respectful conversational tone, and getting a clear idea of the differences between, say, uh, expressing ourselves aggressively and expressing ourselves in uh, what is a perfectly reasonable uh, assertive tone. So Simon, what can we gain from refining our civil communication skills? Both those cases uh, involve employees who are certainly no sort of shrinking violets. But I think, you know, you could be a shrinking violet. You could be a loudmouth sort of Bolshevik uh, sort of firebrand. You could be someone who just feels as if you're not always your own best advocate. But in any such case, I I think there's really something, something to be gained by honing your own civil communication skills. This is the future this week in conversation. I'm Sandra Peter, Director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Remo, Professor of Information Technology and Organisation at the University of Sydney Business School. This is a special of our weekly podcast, The Future This Week, covering news, technology and the future of business. Today, we're looking at technology and communication in the workplace. If email is so terrible, why haven't we managed to replace it yet? Google tried almost 10 years ago with Google Wave. IBM have tried with their technology and then there's Slack, there's Yammer, there's Enterprise Social, various chat platforms. So it's not for lack of trying that email isn't dying. Email, at least in the West, is here to stay. Yeah, and it used to be the informal medium. Businesses were hesitant to adopt email, but now email is the official channel of communication to the extent that a whole bunch of other technologies are now seen to be more informal, like Twitter and Slack. Which we have adopted in addition to email. Yeah, nothing has replaced email. It's just gotten more complex. But this is all very different to what would happen in other places, such as China. Some of the people there would be hard-pressed to even remember what their email address is. They would use WeChat, which is a chat application. It's often compared with WhatsApp, but it's much, much more. This application has almost a billion people on it. So it's bigger than anything that we have in terms of WhatsApp or Viber or Google Hangouts or any of the other things that we use. Scale is staggering. Not only is it a chat application, it enables mobile payments in a frictionless way. It enables companies to publish content online, to advertise online. So why are practices so different in China? Why no email? It's much more about building relationships, much more informal, less of the policy-driven, well-formulated comms that we find in Western corporations. So even in the workplace, there's much more done on a personal basis and chat is more conducive to that. But the stark difference in social and workplace practices has its roots in something other than culture. It's actually technology. The phenomenon is called leapfrogging, and it refers to the idea that developing countries can sometimes just skip a step. China has gone straight to mobile. There were never widespread desktops, so WeChat didn't come to replace email or displace any social and workplace practices. And with over 900 million users, who needs an email address? And this will happen again in places like Africa if you have to choose between 
email or WhatsApp and an app that can do everything else, like WeChat, we're seeing Africa going the same way. So maybe we are going to have to live in a world where we're comfortable traversing many different communication apps. I think attempts have been made to integrate all of these communication channels. They usually fail. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. So you're sitting in the office and then... How do you deal with that? It's hard to know sometimes what to do when it comes to office etiquette. That's why we've got Nicole Gillespie, an Associate Professor of Management at the University of Queensland. She's kindly agreed to give her advice when it comes to this sort of thing. And the first question we have is, how do I tell my colleagues that their mannerisms are impolite and offensive, such as slurping or sniffing? <laughs> I think the first thing to say here is sometimes people are not aware of their mannerisms or their impact that they're having on others. We often assume that people will be aware of this, but they may not be. You know, one of the aspects of this is how it is received when someone points this out is probably influenced by who's giving the feedback and, of course, how they're giving the feedback. If it comes from someone who you don't really know, then you know, it's perhaps more likely to be misinterpreted or misperceived. So if you don't know the person well and you really do want to give them the feedback, I think just making it really clear that you're doing this from a position of um, just wanting to help them and um, from a well-meaning place. So sometimes more indirect ways of giving feedback can be helpful. Maybe the colleague that constantly sniffs, you know, you, you can offer them a tissue. <laughs> so there may be other ways to indirectly give the feedback as well that might feel more comfortable. And then perhaps if that doesn't work, approaching it more directly afterwards. Another question from Trin Lee. Should introverted people try and chat more with their co-workers to appear friendly or should they just focus on what they do best? What I find really interesting about this question is that it implies that introverted people are not perceived to be friendly. And this reminds me of how many myths there are about introverts and extroverts. And I think this perhaps taps into one of those myths. So research shows that introverts tend to have lower social engagement than extroverts. And by comparison with extroverts may seem quiet and less socially involved. And it's also true to say, in general, that introverts prefer to engage one-on-one -on -one with other people or engage in small groups rather than in large groups. But that doesn't mean that they're unfriendly or that you know, introverts are antisocial. And I think you know, research generally supports the idea that focusing on and playing to one's strengths is, is a good idea, that it helps people to be productive, it helps people to be happier in the workplace. So focusing on correcting weaknesses or trying to be in a way that isn't natural for you or that feels unauthentic to you, that's typically not something that's advisable in the workplace. And a book that I recommend by Susan Cain called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. So she argues that modern Western culture misunderstand and undervalue the capabilities and characteristics of introverted people. And there's some really nice advice in there for actually aimed at introverts for how to function in an extroverted culture. So that's a really good resource. One last question from Tom Beath. How much detail of illness or illnesses is it appropriate for an employee to provide when or if it affects their attendance or their performance in the workplace? Employees, I believe, should only disclose the information that they feel comfortable doing so. Now, in saying that, disclosing information uh, can be seen as an indicator of the level of trust in the relationship. So if one isn't able to attend the workplace um, or 
you know, their performance is being affected by some health concern. If we discuss that with our manager, but we don't reveal many details about it and there's a lot of unknowns, then that can raise the question in the manager's mind of well, why isn't this person disclosing more? Why aren't they fully being transparent about what's going on for them? But naturally, if an employee is unsure about the relationship or if they're unsure about their um, the manager or the organisation, what they're going to do with that information, then it's only rational for them to be quite guarded in what they reveal. Um, but that can make it harder to manage. Um, so again, it's one of those situ situations where it depends, I think, on ultimately the employee and what they feel comfortable revealing given their confidence in how that information is going to be revealed. Another critical aspect of this is that it's, managers should really be creating the level of trust in a relationship where employees feel comfortable to be able to openly and honestly talk about what's going on with them, particularly when it's impacting on their performance or their ability to, to come to work. Thanks to Nicole Gillespie, Associate Professor of Management at the University of Queensland for taking our questions and for you for asking them. We see workplaces now that look quite domestic, very high-end kitchens, lounge rooms, fireplaces in some cases. This is Libby Sander. She's a lecturer at Bond University and the founder of the Future of Work project. One of the challenges is that in you know a lot of these workplaces, people can't concentrate, they can't focus. It takes 15 minutes to regain concentration and focus on what you were doing every time you get interrupted. As our workplaces become less formal and the physical walls around our cubicles come down, it becomes easier to get on each other's nerves. So we have to construct barriers in other ways. You know, I see people physically building walls, you know, using storage cabinets and plants and things that bring him from home to try and, you know, make um, a little space where they can, you know, get something done. But barriers in the workplace don't have to be physical. They can also take the form of norms and etiquette. And these are slowly being constructed. You know, we see lots of things that people use, you know, headphones are the new door. If you have... You know, both pods in, that's like the shut door. If you have one pod in, it's like I'm busy, but, you know, you could still interrupt me. And poor people with no headphones are, are supposedly open slather. You can interrupt them any time. And the same phenomena is going on with clothing. So, you know, what we had historically with work attire and uniforms is that it, you know, communicated a particular language about, you know, this is who I am or this is the type of job that I actually do or that we are looking for conformity uh, from our employees so that everyone looks the same. And, you know, sometimes there was good reason for that. But in many cases nowadays with knowledge work, people um, don't have customer-facing roles. As formal work attire stops being mandated, the etiquette around clothing starts becoming a judgment call and a negotiation based on the individual context. You know, you still need to be presented smartly, but that may not mean wearing a suit. For many people, there's a whole range of other options that can convey that message. You know, you have to be careful. Wearing ripped denim will often still be written in the code and um, not having, 
you know, bare midriffs and things like that. Um, so there still needs to be judgment exercised by the employee. Some things you might choose to wear would certainly still have an impact on um, how you're viewed. And the last way offices are becoming less formal is the flexibility of when and where you work. So there is the actual hours that you're doing work and there's the location where you're doing that work. And so if we agree the results and we agree, you know, how they're going to be delivered and, um, you know, what criteria they meet, then then it really shouldn't matter, um, you know, what you're wearing um, in most cases to achieve those results, where you're actually located, um, you know, and how you choose to do that work. Libby Sander from Bond University, speaking with Josh Nicholas, an editor from the Business Desk. This episode, you also heard from our intern, Nadia Issa, and I'm Jenny Henderson, editor for Business and Economy at The Conversation. Our theme music is by Ben Sound. And if you want to find more episodes of Business Briefing, you can head to theconversation.com. If you can, please leave us a rating too with your podcast provider. It helps others find it.